Chapter Nine, Part Three of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume One, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter Nine: State of Germany until the Barbarians, Part Three. The Germans respected only those duties which they imposed on themselves. The most obscure soldier resisted with disdain the authority of the magistrates. The noblest youths blushed not to be numbered among the faithful companions of some renowned chief, to whom they devoted their arms and service. A noble emulation prevailed among the companions, to obtain the first place in the esteem of their chief, amongst the chiefs to acquire the greatest number of valiant companions. To be ever surrounded by a band of select youths was the pride and strength of the chiefs, their ornament in peace, their defence in war. The glory of such distinguished heroes diffused itself beyond the narrow limits of their own tribe. Presents and embassies solicited their friendship, and the fame of their arms often ensured victory to the party which they espoused. In the hour of danger it was shameful for the chief to be surpassed in valour by his companions shameful for the companions not to equal the valour of their chief. To survive his fall in battle was indelible infamy. To protect his person and to adorn his glory with the trophies of their own exploits were the most sacred of their duties. The chiefs combated for victory, the companions for the chief. The noblest warriors, whenever their native country was sunk into the laziness of peace, maintained their numerous bands in some distant scene of action, to exercise their restless spirit, and to acquire renown by voluntary dangers. Gifts worthy of soldiers, the warlike steed, the bloody and even victorious lance, were the rewards which the companions claimed from the liberality of their chief. The rude plenty of his hospitable board was the only pay that he could bestow, or they would accept. War, rapine, and the free-will offerings of his friends supplied the materials of this beneficence. This institution, however it might accidentally weaken the several republics, invigorated the general character of the Germans, and even ripened amongst them all the virtues of which barbarians are susceptible, the faith and valour, the hospitality and the courtesy, so conspicuous long afterwards in the ages of chivalry. The honourable gifts bestowed by the chief on his brave companions have been supposed, by an ingenious writer, to contain the first rudiments of the fiefs distributed after the conquest of the Roman provinces by the barbarian lords among their vassals, with a similar duty of homage and military service. These conditions are, however, very repugnant to the maxims of the ancient Germans, who delighted in mutual presence, but without either imposing or accepting the weight of obligations. In the days of chivalry, or more properly of romance, all the men were brave, and all the women were chaste and notwithstanding the latter of these virtues is acquired and preserved with much more difficulty than the former, it is ascribed, almost without exception, to the wives of the ancient Germans. Polygamy was not in use, except among the princes, and among them only for the sake of multiplying their alliances. Divorces were prohibited by manners rather than by laws. Adulteries were punished as rare and inexpiable crimes, nor was seduction justified by example and fashion we may easily discover that Tacitus indulges an honest pleasure in the contrast of barbarian virtue with the dissolute conduct of the Roman ladies. 
yet there are some striking circumstances that give an air of truth or at least probability to the conjugal faith and chastity of the germans although the progress of civilization has undoubtedly contributed to assuage the fiercer passions of human nature it seems to have been less favorable to the virtue of chastity whose most dangerous enemy is the softness of the mind the refinements of life corrupt while they polish the intercourse of the sexes the gross appetite of love becomes most dangerous when it is elevated or rather indeed disguised by sentimental passion the elegance of dress of motion and of manners gives a lustre to beauty and inflames the senses through the imagination luxurious entertainments midnight dances and licentious spectacles present at once temptation and opportunity to female frailty from such dangers the unpolished wives of the barbarians were secured by poverty solitude and the painful cares of a domestic life the german huts open on every side to the eye of indiscretion or jealousy were a better safeguard of conjugal fidelity than the walls the bolts and the eunuchs of a persian harem to this reason another may be added of a more honourable nature the germans treated their women with esteem and confidence consulted them on every occasion of importance and fondly believed that in their breast resided a sanctity and wisdom more than human some of the interpreters of fate such as valida in the batvian war governed in the name of the deity the fiercest nations of germany the rest of the sex without being adored as goddesses were respected as the free and equal companions of soldiers associated even by the marriage ceremony to a life of toil of danger and of glory in their great invasions the camps of the barbarians were filled with a multitude of women who remained firm and undaunted amidst the sound of arms the various forms of destruction and the honourable wounds of their sons and husbands fainting armies of germans have more than once been driven back upon the enemy by the generous despair of the women who dreaded death much less than servitude if the day was irrevocably lost they well knew how to deliver themselves and their children with their own hands from an insulting victor heroines of such a caste may claim our admiration but they were most assuredly neither lovely nor very susceptible of love whilst they affected to emulate the stern virtues of man they must have resigned that attractive softness in which principally consists the charm and weakness of woman conscious pride taught the german females to suppress every tender emotion that stood in competition with honour and the first honour of the sex has ever been that of chastity the sentiments and conduct of these high-spirited matrons may at once be considered as a cause as an effect and as a proof of the general character of the nation female courage however it may be raised by fanaticism or confirmed by habit can be only a faint and imperfect imitation of the manly valour that distinguishes the age or country in which it may be found the religious system of the germans if the wild opinions of savages can deserve that name was dictated by their wants their fears and their ignorance they adored the great visible objects and agents of nature the sun and the moon the fire and the earth together with those imaginary deities who were supposed to preside over the most important occupations of human life they were persuaded that by some ridiculous arts of divination they could discover the will of the superior beings and that human sacrifices were the most precious and acceptable offering to their altars 
some applause has been hastily bestowed on the sublime notion entertained by that people of the deity whom they neither confined within the walls of the temple nor represented by any human figure but when we recollect that the germans were unskilled in architecture and totally unacquainted with the art of sculpture we shall readily assign the true reason of a scruple which arose not so much from a superiority of reason as from a want of ingenuity the only temples in germany were dark and ancient groves consecrated by the reverence of succeeding generations their secret gloom the imagined residence of an invisible power by presenting no distinct object of fear or worship impressed the mind with a still deeper sense of religious horror and the priests rude and illiterate as they were had been taught by experience the use of every artifice that could preserve and fortify impressions so well suited to their own interest the same ignorance which renders barbarians incapable of conceiving or embracing the useful restraints of laws exposes them naked and unarmed to the blind terrors of superstition the german priests improving this favorable temper of their countrymen had assumed a jurisdiction even in temporal concerns which the magistrate could not venture to exercise and the haughty warrior patiently submitted to the lash of correction when it was inflicted not by any human power but by the immediate order of the god of war the defects of civil policy were sometimes supplied by the interposition of ecclesiastical authority the latter was constantly exerted to maintain silence and decency in the popular assemblies and was sometimes extended to a more enlarged concern for the national welfare a solemn procession was occasionally celebrated in the present countries of mecklenburg and pomerania the unknown symbol of the earth covered with a thick veil was placed on a carriage drawn by cows and in this manner the goddess whose common residence was in the isles of rugen visited several adjacent tribes of her worshippers. During her progress the sound of war was hushed, quarrels were suspended, arms laid aside, and the restless Germans had an opportunity of tasting the blessings of peace and harmony. The truce of God, so often and so ineffectually proclaimed by the clergy of the eleventh century, was an obvious imitation of this ancient custom but the influence of religion was far more powerful to inflame than to moderate the fierce passions of the germans interest and fanaticism often prompted its ministers to sanctify the most daring and the most unjust enterprises by the approbation of heaven and full assurances of success the consecrated standards long revered in the groves of superstition were placed in the front of the battle and the hostile army was devoted with dire execrations to the gods of war and of thunder. In the faith of soldiers, and such were the Germans, cowardice is the most unpardonable of sins. A brave man was the worthy favorite of their martial deities. The wretch who had lost his shield was alike banished from the religious and civil assemblies of his countrymen. Some tribes of the north seem to have embraced the doctrine of transmigration others imagined a gross paradise of immortal drunkenness all agreed that a life spent in arms and a glorious death in battle were the best preparations for a happy futurity either in this or in another world the immortality so vainly promised by the priests was in some degree conferred by the bards that singular order of men has most deservedly attracted the notice of all who have attempted to investigate the antiquities of the celts 
the Scandinavians, and the Germans. Their genius and character, as well as the reverence paid to that important office, have been sufficiently illustrated. But we cannot so easily express, or even conceive, the enthusiasm of arms and glory which they kindled in the breast of their audience. Among a polished people, a taste for poetry is rather an amusement of the fancy than a passion of the soul. And yet, when in calm retirement we peruse the combats described by Homer or Tasso, we are insensibly seduced by the fiction, and feel a momentary glow of martial ardor. But how faint, how cold is the sensation which a peaceful mind can receive from solitary study! It was in the hour of battle, or in the feast of victory, that the bards celebrated the glory of the heroes of ancient days, the ancestors of those warlike chieftains, who listened with transport to their artless but animated strains. The view of arms and of danger heightened the effect of the military song, and the passions which it tended to excite, the desire of fame and the contempt of death, were the habitual sentiments of a German mind. Such was the situation, and such were the manners of the ancient Germans. Their climate, their want of learning, of arts and of laws, their notions of honor, of gallantry, and of religion, their sense of freedom, impatience of peace, and thirst of enterprise, all contributed to form a people of military heroes. And yet we find that during more than two hundred and fifty years that elapsed from the defeat of Varus to the reign of Decius, these formidable barbarians made few considerable attempts, and not any material impression, on the luxurious and enslaved provinces of the empire. Their progress was checked by their want of arms and discipline, and their fury was diverted by the intestine divisions of ancient Germany. It has been observed with ingenuity, and not without truth, that the command of iron soon gives a nation the command of gold. But the rude tribes of Germany, alike destitute of both those valuable metals, were reduced slowly to acquire by their unassisted strength the possession of the one as well as the other. The face of a German army displayed their poverty of iron. Swords, and the longer kind of lances, they could seldom use. Their frame, as they called them in their own language, were long spears headed with a sharp but narrow iron point, and which, as occasion required, they either darted from a distance or pushed in close onset. With this spear, and with a shield, their cavalry was contented. A multitude of darts, scattered with incredible force, were an additional resource of the infantry. Their military dress, when they wore any, was nothing more than a loose mantle. A variety of colors was the only ornament of their wooden or austere shields. Few of the chiefs were distinguished by cuirasses, scarcely any by helmets. Though the horses of Germany were neither beautiful, swift, nor practiced in the skillful evolutions of the Roman menege, Several of the nations obtained renown by their cavalry, but, in general, the principal strength of the Germans consisted in their infantry, which was drawn up in several deep columns, according to the distinction of the tribes and families. Impatient of fatigue and delay, these half-armed warriors rushed to battle with dissonant shouts and disordered ranks, and sometimes, by the effort of native valor, prevailed over the constrained and more artificial bravery of the Roman mercenaries. But as the barbarians poured forth their whole souls on the first onset, they knew not how to rally or to retire. A repulse was a sure defeat, and a defeat was most commonly total destruction. 
when we recollect the complete armor of the Roman soldiers, their discipline, exercises, evolutions, fortified camps, and military engines, it appears a just matter of surprise how the naked and unassisted valor of the barbarians could dare to encounter in the field the strength of the legions and the various troops of the auxiliaries which seconded their operations. The contest was too unequal, till the introduction of luxury had enervated the vigor and a spirit of disobedience and sedition had relaxed the discipline of the Roman armies. The introduction of barbarian auxiliaries into those armies was a measure attended with very obvious dangers, as it might gradually instruct the Germans in the arts of war and of policy. Although they were admitted in small numbers and with the strictest precaution, the example of Civilis was proper to convince the Romans that the danger was not imaginary, and that their precautions were not always sufficient. During the civil wars that followed the death of Nero, that artful and intrepid Batavian, whom his enemies condescended to compare with Hannibal and Sertorius, formed a great design of freedom and ambition. Eight Batavian cohorts, renowned in the wars of Britain and Italy, repaired to his standard. He introduced an army of Germans into Gaul, prevailed on the powerful cities of Treves and Langres to embrace his cause, defeated the legions, destroyed their fortified camps, and employed against the Romans the military knowledge which he had acquired in their service. When at length, after an obstinate struggle, he yielded to the power of the empire, Civilis secured himself and his country by an honorable treaty. The Batavians still continued to occupy the islands of the Rhine, the allies, not the servants, of the Roman monarchy. The strength of ancient Germany appears formidable, when we consider the effects that might have been produced by its united effort. The wide extent of country might very possibly contain a million of warriors, as all who were of age to bear arms were of a temper to use them. But this fierce multitude, incapable of concerting or executing any plan of national greatness, was agitated by various and often hostile intentions. Germany was divided into more than forty independent states, and even in each state, the union of the several tribes was extremely loose and precarious. The barbarians were easily provoked. They knew not how to forgive an injury, much less an insult. Their resentments were bloody and implacable. The casual disputes that so frequently happened in their tumultuous parties of hunting or drinking were sufficient to inflame the minds of whole nations. The private feuds of any considerable chieftains diffused itself among their followers and allies. To chastise the insolent, or to plunder the defenseless, were alike causes of war. The most formidable states of Germany affected to encompass their territories with a wide frontier of solitude and devastation. The awful distance preserved by their neighbors attested the terror of their arms, and in some measure defended them from the danger of unexpected incursions. The Bructeri, it is Tacitus who now speaks, were totally exterminated by the neighboring tribes, provoked by their insolence, allured by the hopes of spoil, and perhaps inspired by the tutelar deities of the empire. Above sixty thousand barbarians were destroyed, not by the Roman arms, but in our sight and for our entertainment. May the nations, enemies of Rome, ever preserve this enmity to each other. We have now attained the utmost verge of prosperity, and have nothing left to demand of fortune, except the discord of the barbarians. 
These sentiments, less worthy of the humanity than of the patriotism of Tacitus, express the invariable maxims of the policy of his countrymen. They deemed it a much safer expedient to divide than to combat the barbarians, from whose defeat they could derive neither honor nor advantage. The money and negotiations of Rome insinuated themselves into the heart of Germany, and every art of seduction was used with dignity to conciliate those nations whom their proximity to the Rhine or Danube might render the most useful friends as well as the most troublesome enemies. Chiefs of renown and power were flattered by the most trifling presents, which they received either as marks of distinction or as the instruments of luxury. In civil dissensions the weaker faction endeavored to strengthen its interest by entering into secret connections with the governors of the frontier provinces. Every quarrel among the Germans was fomented by the intrigues of Rome, and every plan of union and public good was defeated by the stronger bias of private jealousy and interest. The general conspiracy which terrified the Romans under the reign of Marcus Antonius comprehended almost all the nations of Germany, and even Sarmartia from the mouth of the Rhine to that of the Danube. It is impossible for us to determine whether this hasty confederation was formed by necessity, by reason, or by passion, but we may rest assured that the barbarians were neither allured by the indolence nor provoked by the ambition of the Roman monarch. This dangerous invasion required all the firmness and vigilance of Marcus. He fixed generals of ability in the several stations of attack, and assumed in person the conduct of the most important province on the upper Danube. After a long and doubtful conflict, the spirit of the barbarians was subdued. The Quadi and the Marcomanni, who had taken the lead in the war, were the most severely punished in its catastrophe. They were commanded to retire five miles from their own banks of the Danube, and to deliver up the flower of the youth, who were immediately sent into Britain, a remote island, where they might be secure as hostages, and useful as soldiers. On the frequent rebellions of the Quadi and the Marcomanni, the irritated emperor resolved to reduce their country into the form of a province. His designs were disappointed by death. This formidable league, however, the only one that appears in the two first centuries of the imperial history, was entirely dissipated, without leaving any traces behind in Germany. In the course of this introductory chapter, we have confined ourselves to the general outlines of the manners of Germany, without attempting to describe or to distinguish the various tribes which filled that great country in the time of Caesar, of Tacitus, or of Ptolemy. As the ancient or as new tribes successively present themselves in the series of this history, we shall concisely mention their origin, their situation, and their particular character. Modern nations are fixed and permanent societies, connected among themselves by laws and government, bound to their native soil by arts and agriculture. The German tribes were voluntary and fluctuating associations of soldiers, almost of savages. The same territory often changed its inhabitants in the tide of conquest and emigration. The same communities, uniting in a plan of defense or invasion, bestowed a new title on their new confederacy. The dissolution of an ancient confederacy restored to the independent tribes their peculiar but long-forgotten appellation. A victorious state often communicated its own name to a vanquished people. Sometimes crowds of volunteers flocked from all parts to the standard of a favorite leader. His camp became their country, 
and some circumstance of the enterprise soon gave a common denomination to the mixed multitude. The distinctions of the ferocious invaders were perpetually varied by themselves, and confounded by the astonished subjects of the Roman Empire. Wars, and the administration of public affairs, are the principal subjects of history. But the number of persons interested in these busy scenes is very different, according to the different condition of mankind. In great monarchies, millions of obedient subjects pursue their useful occupations in peace and obscurity. The attention of the writer, as well as of the reader, is solely confined to a court, a capital, a regular army, and the districts which happen to be the occasional scene of military operations. But a state of freedom and barbarism, the season of civil commotions, or the situation of petty republics, raises almost every member of the community into action, and consequently into notice. The irregular divisions and the restless motions of the people of Germany dazzle our imagination, and seem to multiply their numbers. The profuse enumeration of kings, of warriors, of armies and nations, inclines us to forget that the same subjects are continually repeated under a variety of appellations, and that the most splendid appellations have been frequently lavished on the most inconsiderable objects. End of chapter 9, part 3